So I thought we could start with a little humor this morning. Uh, a woman walks into a department store and asks the clerk behind the counter, what do you get for the man that has everything? And the clerk says, a storage locker. <laughs> I like that one. So I was at um, Leisure World yesterday, and we had a nice turnout, and it was fun. And a woman said to me, it was her first time there, she says, why do you always talk about suffering? Because for the hour I talked about suffering. And, and then she says, and what is it? I, I don't understand what you're trying to say. So uh, I thought, that is like the best question all day. So why do we talk about suffering as a Buddhist? Because the Buddha only talked about two things. He only talked about why we suffer and how to end our suffering. And it took me uh, a long time to appreciate the fact that I was suffering because I had bought into all the stuff that was supposed to end my suffering or prevent my suffering. If I was successful, if I had enough money, if I had a girlfriend, if I had a place to live, I had a car that ran, I would be okay. I wouldn't suffer. And yet, at the age of 28, 29, uh, suffering became obvious to me, and I felt let down by the whole community we know as humankind, because I had been lied to. And then I came to Buddhism, and Buddhism just sort of like laid it out. So I'm going to start off with like the very beginning of the beginning. Why do we suffer? Number one, we suffer because we have a mind and a body. And that causes us a lot of pain. We have emotional pain and we have physical pain. But pain isn't suffering, according to Buddhism. Pain is just pain, and it's pretty uncomfortable. So when we're young, we have a lot of pain and a lot of sickness because we're trying to build our immune system, and we're trying to figure out what we do if we walk around and hit a wall. Is the wall different than we are? If we come to a door that we can't open, we have a lot of trial and error going on, and that causes us a lot of fear and anxiety and pain. Then we get to sort of like, you know, in our 20s and stuff, and we might have a lot of accidents. We might try doing things that we shouldn't do or challenging ourselves in special ways, like, you know, a 26-mile marathon. And, and those things can cause us to, to have a lot of physical pain and also emotional pain when we don't win. We also get into the, the age group that I'm in now, which is the old guys and the old gals. And this is just like really fascinating if you have a good sense of humor. Because you go from single vision to bifocals to trifocals. You know? You go from hearing pretty well to reading lips. You know? Because you just, if the room is too big and there's too much back noise, it's just hard to hear people. And, and I find after I give a talk, especially, it's hard to hear people speaking to me because I've been listening to myself for an hour. <laughs> and now I have to adjust and listen to others as well. We also have the, the, 
the pain that the, the transitory pain that comes with age. So your feet hurt and your hands hurt, and all of a sudden a, a knuckle there's discomfort that's never been there before, and you don't remember jamming your finger into anything. And you go, wow. And then your feet at night, sort of sometimes they throb a little bit, and you go, what the hell is that? You know, and then the knees don't work very well, and the back gets a little stiff, and, and you just figure, well, you know, I'm close to death. I guess this is what's going to happen. You know? Thankfully, most of that stuff is not chronic, and it's just there for a while, and then it goes away. But it reminds you that your body and your mind, uh, you are not in charge. Because if you were, you would prevent all that stuff from happening. So we have the pain of the body and the emotional pain of having a consciousness that is aware, but also delusional and ignorant. We have the anxiety and stress that comes out of impermanence, that nothing lasts forever. In fact, some things last just so short. It's the, the, the existence is so short, we almost miss it. And, and it reminds me of the car that I just bought years ago that was just perfect until the first scratch or dent, and you go, man, I had so much emotion invested in that car. It defined who I was. And what I did is I drove around, and now it's got a ding, so I've got a ding, you know. And it's really a bummer. And then the impermanence of pets. Anybody who has pets knows that they don't last long enough. You might get a good 12 or 15 years out of a pet, but then they just die in you. And then you have to bury them. And then you get another one, and the little cute guy or gal is just so much fun. And then they get old and die, too. And you can have, like, all these pets in just one lifetime. And each one of those pets is a teaching for you to allow you to see that you also are impermanent. And everything that's born has to die. And I'm just amazed that people who think creation is such a wonderful thing. You know... We have 7 billion people, and for some reason, everybody wants to have kids. I don't have any. I have cats. But there's something that, that just sort of pushes us in that direction. We want to keep the population high, and we're doing a good job. But when you think about what it means to have a kid, first of all, you're going to be living with somebody who's going to be changing constantly. You'll know her or him only for a few years until they become the next person. And you're going to have to adjust and reintroduce yourself to your partner or mate and say, yes, here we are again. You know, what are we going to do now? And then the little ones come. And they cost a fortune. And they're always sick. And you're always scared that they might hurt themselves or find themselves in a situation they can't handle. And then they grow up and then they're even more expensive because they want to be fashionable and have the right clothing and shoes and their first car. And then you want to educate them. So you pick a nice university that's going to put you about 50000 a year in debt because this person is going to be smart in spite of what you know about them personally. And then they... <laughs> <laughs> and then they graduate, and they, and, they, and they find that first job, you know, and it's Denny's. And you just go, well... At least they're smart. 
you know. And they build a life. But in order for them to build a life, they have to leave you. They have to go. And it, there's a sadness in that. Because sometimes they, they don't ever thank you and they don't ever come back. They just send you tweets <laughs> or follow you on Facebook. And, and that's your relationship. You know? And then you die. And then... <laughs> <laughs> so... so so it, it, it's, this impermanence thing causes us to suffer a lot. Then we have the unsatisfactoriness of conditional life, that everything is conditioned. And I didn't really pay too much attention to this part of it, but nothing exists separately and alone. Every, everything exists because of something else. And, and it's not just because of one thing or two things, it's because of 10,000 things. Every situation, every form of life has 10,000 conditions necessary for it to exist. And you take too many of those conditions away and they die. So, suffering. But what is this suffering? Any of this stuff I talked about, was I talking about suffering? No, I wasn't talking about suffering. I was talking about pain and impermanence and conditionality. And we suffer because we want those things to be different than they are. We suffer because we don't want it to be that way. And we will fight and we will educate ourselves and we will manipulate the world around us so that stuff doesn't happen. And we always fail. And we always know it could be just a little better, bit better than it is. We always know if this thing was just like this or that thing was just like that, it would be perfect, and those things never happen, those conditions never manifest, and we're disappointed. Our life lacks perfection. It's always compromise. That's what suffering's about. That's what the Buddha talked about. He says, we are blessed with having a, a separate ego that can define the world around us and define our experience in that world. But this ego isn't us. It's a process. So here we are. So what do we need to do? Once we figure that out, I was 28, once we figure this out, what do we do? Well, I thought about it, and I think the first thing we do is we look at the four requisites. Four requisites. The four requirements necessary to have a spiritual path. Now, this is sort of a monk thing, but it's also a human thing. It's a lay thing. It applies to all of us. So what is the first requirement necessary for us to create a spiritual path for ourselves? And it is food. Food and water. You know? I never thought about it. I just took food and water for granted. That when I lived at home, you know, it just materialized, <laughs> thanks to mom. And then when I moved out, I found out where all the restaurants were, and then I went there, and I didn't have to do any dishes, you know. And, but when you look at the, the food problem we have today, that we have uh, HMOs, we have water that uh, is being tainted by lead or fracking chemicals or a variety of other things, Fukushima, Japan, Pacific Ocean, 
radiation, whoa. You look at all those things, and one of the necessities for our spiritual path, our life, is food and water. And I love it when we have, make these distinctions, and there are some here that I know, and the distinction would be, well, I live better, I eat better, because I'm a vegetarian. I like vegetarians. They're oftentimes thinner than I am. <laughs> and, and I'm going more and more in that direction, not because it's better food, but because I just don't like the suffering of the animals that I keep look, seeing in my hamburger and hot dogs. I see the suffering. But food is food. And everything we eat at one time was alive. The cow or the broccoli. At one time they were alive. And we need, in order to sustain our own life, eat things that were alive. And what an irony that is. How cruel is that joke on us? That we, we take the first precept of not to kill, and yet everything we consume was killed so we could consume it. Food and water, first requisite. Second requisite, clothing. Now, clothing, if you live in Canada, is like really important. Because it's cold up there, I've been told. And they have snow. And you can get hypothermia. If you're in Tahiti, you could probably just be naked. You know, but then the mosquitoes would just eat you alive. So clothing is designed to protect us from the elements and the insects. And yet, if you live in L.A., do you choose fashion or function? Which way do you go? Now, I've been choosing function for a really long time and often look homeless. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's an odd reaction I get. You know, I'm really comfortable. My pants are one size too big and my shirts are two sizes too big. And it just feels so good not to have form-fitting clothes on. And, and I meet none of the requirements of dressing good. Though it, most of the time the clothes are clean, and that's a good thing. They don't smell. But how did we get caught up in this fashion thing? And how many billions of dollars are manifested every year because people are going in the direction of fashion and not function? Even Dickies. I don't know if you know, you know the work clothing. They look cool too now, you know? So they added another 10 bucks to all the items, you know? <laughs> So the second requisite for our spiritual path is clothing. We need to have clothing. The third requisite, shelter. We need to find shelter. Now, for a long time I lived alone. And I had a small apartment in the Palms area of West Los Angeles. And it was fine. It was just me, you know, and my stuff. And, and I would occasionally cook, but most of the time I didn't. And it was just, it was cool. But I was taking up a lot of space just for me. And it's a small apartment. And then 23 years ago, I moved into IBMC. And I joined a community. And we shared stuff. We have eating utensils in the kitchen. We have plates and cups and glasses in the kitchen that are community. We have a stove and we have a refrigerator. And so five or six people can share those items and utilize them, and, 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 and really save a lot of money, but also save um, the environment as well. And I'm not advocating community living, but I'm saying it's an option. And then we have the families, and the families, you know, want to raise their young'uns, 
And so they have a house, and then the youngins move out, and oftentimes they'll downsize and downsize and downsize until they become comfortable and aren't stuck with cleaning every day, all day. You know? And then generally, if we're lucky enough to live long enough, we end up in assisted care, you know? We have a little room, and then we sort of, you know, hobble out to get our lunch, and then we go back in, and sometimes we can't hobble, they just bring it to us, and then we die. And you just look at all these different alternatives around the world of how people live and protect themselves from the environment in their shelters. And we need a shelter if we want to practice our spiritual path. Otherwise, we'll be looking for it all the time. Where do I find shelter? And even in the old days, the monks had caves and trees and mosquito nets. They even had shelters too. And finally... The last requirement that we all need for a spiritual path, medicine. You need to have some kind of health insurance or figure out how to get medicine if you get sick because we're all going to get sick and we're all going to have accidents and we're all going to need access to medical care. And that will allow us to continue our spiritual practice. So, number one, food and water. Requirement for spiritual practice. Number two, clothing protect ourselves. Number four, or three, shelter. Number four, medicine. These are the requirements of a Buddhist monk or nun, but I think they're the requirements of every human who starts this spiritual path. So now you're ready. You got your shelter and your clothes and your food and Obamacare, and now you say, okay, what do I do next? Because now I see suffering so clearly, and it's everywhere, and I'm stuck in it. And the next thing we need to do is accept the five precepts. That's the basis of our spiritual practice once the four requirements have been met. So, the first one, killing. Not to kill anymore. We don't want to kill anymore. Yesterday they had a 1940s black and white movie, Dale Evans and Roy Rogers. Oh, you know, and life was never like that, but it was just, they're so wholesome and good-natured. And Dale said to Roy, you know, one of the fondest memories I have is going rabbit hunting with my dad. He was such a great hunter. And I just translated it in a Buddhist way. One of the fondest memories I have is going to kill rabbits with my dad. He could kill them better than anybody else. And we had such good times talking about it. Killing the rabbits. And then there's a scene of going fishing. Oh, a sunny day in the middle of the lake, killing fish. Whoa. All these good times in one movie, you know. <laughs> and, and I look at some of the dramas on television now. I'm so glad we have retro TV. You can watch The Love Boat if you want, you know. <laughs> Because all the dramas are just, they're just ripping people apart in 10,000 pieces, you know? And they're dramatically doing it. And, and they're bringing it in living color or dead color to your TV set. And, and after three or four hours of that, you know, whoa. So when we decide not to kill, it seems to me that we decide, number one, we don't want to kill, but we don't want to be part of the killing either. We don't want to enjoy you know, the slaughter that goes on in movies 
and TVs, and now they have the Revenant. I think that's the movie. You know, I only saw the trailer, and damn, just, you know, killing and killing, and there's bears eating guys, and people shooting each other, and ending up in horses, and you just go, man, great entertainment, you know? So when I started not killing, I started with human beings. I figured that was the best place to start. And... And, and, and I learned a lot about it because, you know, instead of hating someone, you sort of love them or at least you're kind to them. And, 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 and sometimes you think, I, I remember a few years ago, it was a Sunday afternoon and I was getting my afternoon nap and there was this ice cream truck about two blocks away. And you know how they have that song that just keeps going, na 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 hour after hour, and I'm thinking, you know, with a 30-30 and a scope, (laughs) I could take out the speaker, and then I would never have to hear it again, and then I went back to sleep. It was just like, sometimes we go in that direction because that's the fastest way to end the problem. We kill the problem. So you have cockroaches, you figure out how to kill them instead of how to get rid of them. Now, this morning, I was in the laundry area washing the cat dishes after breakfast, and there was a little cockroach, and he was sort of stuck in the sink, and he was trying to get out, and he couldn't get out. So I put my hand down and got him out, and he was on my hand, and I just put him outside. (sighs) So he could go and find food someplace else. And in the old days, I would have just smashed him, you know, and then cleaned up the mess. Because it's messy when you smash those big insects. For some reason, I saw the value of the cockroach. I saw the value of that life, and I didn't want to take it. And the more times I do that, it becomes habitual. It becomes a way of living. So you start with the humans, and you work your way down to the cockroaches. And every opportunity not to kill is a chance to learn something about yourself and the miracle of life on this planet. Because as far as we know, this is the only planet that has life. And, and for some reason, we all made it here, you know? And here we are, all together with all the trees and the insects and the animals and the humans, and we're all living on this little rock in space. And yet we're just wiping life out left and right because we think it's the right thing to do or the proper thing to do or the political thing to do. And you just, it's such a sad commentary on how stupid we are as humans. Because we don't wrestle as Buddhists with original sin, we wrestle with original ignorance. Number two, not taking stuff that's not yours. When you live in a community, there's a lot of people's stuff just laying around. You know, Do you take it? Do you use it for yourself? Do you try to find the owner? Do you give it back? What do you do? So what I have found is that I put my face on the water bottle so people will know it's my water bottle. Does that prevent them from taking it? Not necessarily. It could end up on eBay. I don't know. They could make 10 bucks off the deal. But to honor the illusion of ownership is important because we don't own stuff. We just use stuff until somebody wants it more than we do. So we have this illusion, we have receipts, we know it's ours, and then 
somebody takes it, or it gets old, or we can't find it, and we suffer. So can we just use all the stuff in our life and not attach ownership to it? Can we just use the stuff? And can we then, when we're through using it, give it to others so they can use it? Because it wasn't ours, and it won't be theirs. You know, Perhaps, but it takes practice. It takes a long time. Number three is sexual misconduct. And, and this is a tough one. You know, even if you're trying to be celibate, it's still tough. Because you have to sort of work through all the stuff, you know. And, and first of all, you're working through why you would be attracted to, to someone else. What's the point? What are the triggers necessary for your attraction to manifest? Generally speaking, it's because you want to replicate. And people are coming together with the hopes of replication. You know? And, and that's fine. I'm all for it. But, man, we're good at it. And we have so many of us. And it doesn't seem to be going in the other direction. Sometimes we just want to be with another person. So we figure, wow, I could, I could set up shop and have a wonderful home. And we could share and da-da-da-da-da. But you know what? They're changing. You're changing. What you want today won't be what you want tomorrow. It's really tough to have any kind of relationship at all. You know? And, and, and then you say, well, maybe I'll just be like a monk guy, you know? And rather than, because of circumstances, I'll choose not to have an intimate relationship with someone. Well, you know, then you just suffer because you're alone. And you suffer because you understand why it's unskillful or will cause you suffering, but you still want it anyway. And there you sit. So, you know, I I had to go to what the Buddha said according to Bhikkhu Bodhi in the Noble Eightfold Path, and he was really clear about this. He said, you know, most humans are going to want to have an intimate relationship. It's just part of being a human being. It's part of being any being. Today, in the koi pond, they're mating. What a mess. I'll be cleaning it up for a week. But I'm not going to tell them they're wrong or shouldn't do it. Fish don't care, you know. So, what did the Buddha say? He said, he said if, you, if you want to have sex, he said, don't have sex with people that are married, are engaged, or don't have sex with children. So, he, he picked out the family. He, he realized the family unit was so important that, that we needed to honor it, and, and, and we needed to avoid causing the family unit to break up. And then he said, against their will. Not to have sex with people against their will. I thought, wow, that is such an important thing. And now in colleges, the big debate's on, you know. Just say no, and then, but did she really mean no? Did he really mean no? Blah, blah, da, 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 da. It is so confusing. And our, our season is 365, 24-7. We're ready any time, day or night, just to have some sex. So, why did the Buddha say monks don't, you can't have sex. It's not good for you to have sex. It's important to avoid having sex. He said that because it's really expensive. (laughs) You know, if you want to have sex, you're going to have a partner, you're going to have to have shelter, you're going to have to have extra food, more clothing, bigger medical bill. You're going to have a lot of things to buy. 
when you go into that little relationship of one extra person. And then, along the way, you might want to have a third person, a little person, which is like really expensive, a couple hundred thousand by the time they finally move out. So he said, you, you don't have a regular job. You are in an economy of generosity. You rely on donations. You can't depend on donations. Some days are good. Some days aren't so good. You're going to require a steady income if you have a family or even a partner. So he said, stay away from that. It's not any good. And one of the biggest reasons monks and nuns give back their ordination is because they finally found the right person. Oh, they're so in love. They get to have a mortgage and a car payment now. How lucky are they? (laughs) But the most important thing is if you really, really want to be in an intimate relationship, you'll really, really never be free. And Buddhism is ultimately about being free. Ultimately about being free. Free from what? Free from suffering. So you'll be in relationship, and you'll be in love, and you'll be happy, and you'll be joyful, and you will be suffering. That's just the way it goes. Bummer. Number four, don't tell lies. Debates, political debates, aren't they just great? (laughs) Is anybody telling the truth? I can't tell. I do fact checks, and it seems like everything they said was wrong or untrue. What's the problem with lying? It undermines the reality of the person listening. Now, they don't know if it's true or false. They don't know if it's good or bad. They can't tell. So when we lie, we are undermining reality. We've been lied to our whole life. It starts early. Grade school. George Washington cut down the cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie. That story is a lie. He never cut down the cherry tree. I found that out in my 20s. I was so disappointed. I believed that story, and I liked that story, and I liked George. So now you have to look at everything you've ever learned or listened to and wonder if they were telling you the truth. And if they weren't telling you the truth, what was their agenda? What were they trying to do? You know? So we can start by not telling lies or at least fewer lies, or smaller lies. Start small, you know, and then eventually don't tell any lies at all, which means you won't be saying much to anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Just be sitting quietly, enjoying life. Now, the fifth one, not to consume intoxicants. Man. I never really understood or appreciated the value of not consuming intoxicants. Though I must say, because I'm old, my intoxicants were cigarettes and beer. You know, and I would just have a couple beers and I'd smoke a pack of cigarettes and life was good. Until the lung cancer came or the liver stopped, you know. But it wasn't much of a... A dependency, and I was able not to drink, and I finally quit smoking at the age of 28 and never smoked again. And, and so now I'm sort of stuck on Gatorade, you know? I'm thinking, <laughs> and I, I know the chemicals in there are just terrible, but, you know, it tastes good. And I always have a couple, you know, quarts in my little refrigerator just to make my life better. But I watched this 
heroin addiction PBS documentary Frontline just a couple nights ago. And they, they focused in on Seattle and a, and a woman who was like 18 came from a middle-class family, well-educated, and found heroin. What did she lose? She lost her shelter, her clothing, her food, and water. She was dependent every day on the generosity of others just to exist. And on top of that, she needed about a thousand bucks a week to buy her drugs. And I'm just looking at that going, man, if people could see that, they would really appreciate the idea that the fifth precept is probably the hardest but the most important one to hold. That, that if you can hold that fifth precept, you have so much freedom, so much freedom not to consume intoxicants. You know, and, and every wedding I've ever gone to or done as a Buddhist, all the Buddhists are <laughs> drinking, you know? But that's what you do at a wedding. And they're eating meat. But that's what you do at a wedding. And then I'm there with water and a, and a salad. I'm going, I wish I had that, you know. So it was just like, wow. This fifth precept is the most difficult, the most valuable, and the most expensive to reinstitute if you lose it. You know? It costs thousands of dollars. And you'll always be addicted. And I will always be addicted to cigarettes. That I, I can't touch a pack of cigarettes. It's been years and years. But still, once or twice every other year or so, I want a cigarette. Where does that stuff come from? Why is it still there? Why doesn't it give up? Why do I have to say my, tell myself I'm not going to smoke? Even after not smoking all those years. So I, it's something you sort of have to live with. I don't do this anymore. The guy that did that, I killed. Which sounds rather dramatic from a Buddhist. But you have to kill the guy that smoked in order for the guy that not smoked to be reborn. So the guy that smoked died a long time ago. But now and then his memory comes to surface. That's the foundation. Gosh, that's where we start. If we can get all those things in place, the five precepts and the four requisites, you are now ready for your spiritual practice. The next part, as we all know, is meditation. We're going to cultivate the mind. See, the suffering doesn't happen in the world. You can't go out into the world and find suffering. It has no color or taste, has no sound, has no sight. You can't see suffering. Suffering is in our consciousness. And so what we're doing is building the foundation. We're getting our body ready to sit quietly, and be as comfortable as it can so we can work on our mind. And some people say, is it okay to meditate in a chair? Absolutely. The meditation is, is not about your body sitting in a chair. Meditation is about getting your body in a situation that's stable and has as little discomfort as possible. And sometimes the chair is the way to do it. And then you close your eyes and you find your object of meditation. And I started with breath. My object of meditation was breath. I did it for two years. Breath counting for two years. I got really good. And, and what I found was it's not linear at all, which is so disappointing. That if you're doing any kind of you know, weightlifting or running, generally speaking, you get better the more you do it. But that doesn't work in meditation. 
I have come to understand that meditation, every time I sit down to meditate, it's the first time. Though I could have meditated yesterday and probably will meditate tomorrow, but this is the first time I've ever meditated. This is the first time that all these conditions have arisen. Even if it's the same place, the same cushion, and the same time, everything is different. And so it just happens in this present moment. And generally speaking, I have found that if I want my mind to do something, it doesn't do it. Just how my mind works. So what I need to do is create conditions necessary for the mind to go in that direction. So I found the object of meditation, the sensation of breath, and now I use the power of concentration, which sometimes is really good and sometimes is not good at all, and I apply it to the object of meditation and I just hang in there. I just watch it and I count it. And it's one, and it's two, and it's in-breath, and it's out-breath. And I go deeper and deeper into that state of concentration, and all of a sudden the past falls away, and the future falls away, and I start to fall away, and it's just the breath counting. And there you go. And I'm cultivating that in my consciousness, so I will be able to go into a variety of situations and not be intimidated or motivated or try to attach or try to have aversion towards whatever is occurring. I want to have acceptance. I want to be able to see the world as being perfect every moment of every day. Perfect in the sense as it couldn't be any way else right now. Everything that happens couldn't happen any differently right now. But we can change the course of events. We are one of the contributing factors. We have something to say. We can change it. But at that moment, if we can accept it, whatever it is, we don't have to suffer. Because suffering is wanting things to be different than they are. And every time I get on the highway or the freeway or the surface streets, I am ready I prepare myself. I say, this is my practice today. Can I get from point A to point B and not hate? (laughs) You know? And it is difficult. I don't know where these people learn to drive. (laughs) But they go slow. They go fast. They turn left from the right lane. They turn right from the left lane. i got to be careful. I don't want my insurance to go up. And I'm just driving. And there I go. And I'm forgiving, and I, and I know it's difficult to drive. There's so many distractions. And I appreciate it, especially the older people that I find myself behind. I go, wow, I am never going to drive like that. And then I'm driving like that, you know, just you know, really slow and cautious, you know. Just make sure the turn signal is on, people are honking. Come on, a little faster. You know, there's 12 people in the crosswalk. You don't want to hit any of those, and you just sort of wait, you know. <laughs> so can I accept all of that? Can I accept all the stress and tension that goes with driving in Los Angeles? Can I forgive everybody that's on the road with me? Can I appreciate the fact that, that this is a present moment experience that's manifesting exactly how it's supposed to, whether I understand that or not? And can I just embrace the moment? 
can I just hug it and say, I'm so glad I'm here. You know, this is the first time and the last time I'm ever going to experience this. Bang. When you get to that point in your practice, life becomes magical. You walk out that door, it's the first time you've seen Melrose. You go, whoa, look how dirty this is. <laughs> first time. It's, if every time is the first time, your life becomes magical again. And you start to see again. You're not habitually just doing stuff and, and half asleep and expecting the same outcome each time. You're surprised when the outcome happens and it's positive or it's good. And you're not surprised when it doesn't turn out. Because the Buddha warned us, it never is going to be the way you think it's supposed to be until you become enlightened. And then what happens is your perspective shifts and you may be having a good day, but everybody else in your life is having a terrible day. And then you jump into action and you try to make their lives better. The bodhisattva ideal. And you never succeed. You can feed a hundred hungry people and there's a hundred others behind them. You can find shelter for a thousand people and there's still a thousand people that need shelter. It never changes. And to be able to accept that allows you to be functional and, and helpful and not commit suicide. You know? A lot of people commit suicide when they get into helping people because you, there's no end. So what did the Buddha said? He said, we're all in the process of becoming. Everything is in the process of becoming. It's unfolding moment by moment. It never reaches fruition. There is no end. So you jump into the river, and there's no end to the river, and it just takes you down, and you're swimming with it. Sometimes you swim against it. Sometimes you help people stay afloat. That's it. Then you die. Then you're reborn, unless you're Stephen Batchelor. And then you continue in your next lifetime with the same people, but they all look different. The same you, but you're different, and everybody continues to suffer. And you work really hard to reduce suffering, and instead of having 7 billion, now you have 10 billion. And then you die. And you come back again, and there's 12 billion. And you go, whoa. So after all that, you might say to yourself, I want to achieve nirvana and never have to come back again because there are plenty of people that can take my place. I want to go to a place where there was no creation, therefore no destruction. I want to go to a place that's not changing at all. Whoa. No attachment. No aversion. I want to go to a place where I'll never cry again because I'm burying my pets. I want to be in a place of peace. And that's what the Buddha found. He found a way to exist without being born. That just blows my mind. Now, he never talked about it. Nobody ever talks about what nirvana is. So I talk about it. For me, nirvana is going to a place where you don't, you aren't created into it. Your practice allows you to realize it, that it's here right now. And all we need to do is wake up. And the Buddha said, this is how I woke up. 
And for 2,600 years, people have been waking up. And they have been ending their suffering. Even in this very lifetime, they have been ending their suffering. Because they have the four requisites, they have the five precepts, they have meditation, and they have the wisdom necessary to see the true nature of life. And three of the characteristics of the true nature of life are impermanence. Everything is in a constant state of flux and change. Number two, suffering. It's always filled with suffering because we want things to be different than they are. Number three, it's not about us. We don't exist in the way we think we do. We are in process along with everything else. Nothing stands apart. Nothing is totally unique because it's conditional and created by the other 10,000 conditions necessary for existence. And when we start to look at the world in that way, you know, who's angry? Is it the process that's angry at the process? We're interconnected and interdependent. We are literally looking at ourselves every time we see someone else. You know? And the best way to look in the mirror is to smile. Because the guy on the other side smiles back. So I'm not advocating smiling on the street because you might get some strange responses. Because nobody in L.A. smiles very much. You know, they're all sort of looking away. No direct eye contact, you know? But they're us and we're them. So this practice is a lifetime pursuit. This practice requires us to stabilize our existence in the beginning so we can spend more time on the practice itself and not have to worry about where the next meal is coming from or, or where we're going to be spending time next month or next year. We don't want that kind of a distraction. We want to be able to practice now, right now, right now. I think I've said all I need to say today. Does anybody have any comments or questions about what I said? Yes. Yeah, and, um, you know, I'm fairly new to all this. Um, and, uh, you know, in the religious side of Buddhism, um, did Buddha ever talk about, you know, why there's samsara? Like, what the origin of all of this birth, three death, and suffering Oh, that's really a good question. The Buddhists never said there was a first cause. It's always been this way, which is rather, rather philosophical. You know, if you're a Christian, there's always a first cause, God. You know, if you're a Hindu, it could be Brahma. For a Buddhist, it's a big circle. It just keeps turning and turning and turning. So it gives you something less to think about. <laughs> it works out well. Okay, well, yes, Sorry. yes, no, <laughs> no, good, good. You said, um, I wonder if you could elaborate on this, you said the, the ego isn't us, it's mm. the process. Mm. Yeah, can I can, I can. Um, uh, it, it, it seems to be a gift we've been given in our human incarnation, that long, long ago, the first human had self-awareness and was able to look in a pond and see themselves and know it was them. When the cats look in the pond, they just look for fish. They never see themselves. So we have this ability, and it might be survival. I don't know. It might be, that's the reason we have it. But it allows us to reflect and intellectualize 
um, about everything we experience. But from that early beginning, it has kept us separate. We were separate from the door, we're separate from the car, we're separate from our partners. So we can be in relationship. You know, you need two for a relationship. And we have a lot of really interesting relationships because we have a separate sense of self. But it's only a sense of self. It's not anything that exists independently. And it's really difficult to find. If you were to go into an MRI and look through your whole body for self, you probably wouldn't find it. If you were to you know, talk to a psychologist, they could probably tell you some of the characteristics. But when you asked them, where is it, they would be hard-pressed to give you a good answer. So it's this, it's our gift as a human. It allows us to, to be separate and understand the world around us. But it's a terrible master. And oftentimes it becomes the master. So in Buddhism and in meditation, what we're trying to do is transform the master into a tool to be useful, to reduce suffering in the world, to be skillful. And it's a rascal, and it doesn't want to go in that way. It still wants to be in charge. Its whole job is to be in charge. So now you have to die, and you're lying in your hospice bed, and, and they're talking to you, and the family's crying. And, and you might say, well, who's dying? Who doesn't want to die? You know, the body is, you know, is arthritis and, and perhaps cancer, and it's old, and it's frail, and it's wrinkled, and... And, and it, the best thing it could do would be to die. But there's still something inside you that says, no, you can't die. We will fight all the way, and that is ego. The only thing in us that doesn't want to die is ego. It wants to live forever. So we have a soul, according to some traditions, which continues to live forever. There's some independent identity that will go from lifetime to lifetime. Not in Buddhism, but other traditions. That gives us a, a sense of happiness and joy that we will live on. And uh, my mother was always proud of the two books she wrote because she knew after she left this earth, the books would exist in libraries in Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, and that gave her so much joy and happiness. It was wonderful. But we all seem to want something, leave something behind. And the Zen master says, don't even leave a footprint behind. You want it to look just as it did when you came. And I thought, wow, that is so cool. Against everything the ego stands for, though. So the ego wants that footprint to continue. So looking at it as, as simply a process allows us to get perhaps a handle on it, because if it's a process, it's conditional. And if we change some of the conditions, the process is affected. If it's independent and unchanging, then we don't have a, we don't have a shot at it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about suffering, obviously, and um, acceptance. Um, but when you're when you're kind of like when you're making decisions and you're kind of an active participant and actually like versus accepting traffic, I like how do you when you're the active participant, how do you like deal with suffering in those moments or making decisions clearly without being influenced? Yeah. Okay. I, I would say. Perhaps you could look at it as, I want to make a decision that causes less suffering rather than more. You know? And, and that's where you start. And so all those decisions you make, less suffering or more, less suffering or more. And, and you know, as you're driving, some of the decisions will cause more suffering rather than less. 
So, so that would, that's a good place to start. Or even in relationships with your family. What if, what if uh, you feel that your mother always has the last word? You know? And, and, and so you let her have the last word because that causes less suffering than if you were to d- deny her the last word. And, 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 and so, and again, when you say, but how about me? And the Buddhist would say, but, you know, you're a process. You're, you're created because of all the other people in your life. So, so if they're suffering less, you will suffer less too. And, and Buddhism is oftentimes looked at as pessimistic because of all the suffering and the end of suffering and the skillfulness necessary to end suffering. But for me, it's always been sort of realistic. It, I can look at life and I can see what the Buddha talked about. And it's still there. It hasn't changed at all, even after all this time. I hope that's helpful. That's perfect. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, if the soul is, doesn't continue on as it does in some traditions, right? who is reincarnating? There you go. Or what? Or what? Or what is that? What is that? Yeah, that's right. Well, in early Buddhism, they would say our karmic energy migrates lifetime to lifetime. What we say, what we do, what we think, karma, is an energy that can't be destroyed or created, just transformed. So every time we think, say, or do something, we're transforming the energy. That's like a wake behind a boat. And the boat sinks, we die, but the wake continues and hooks up with the next boat. And then that continues. It's an interesting concept. None of us really know for sure. But that's on page 34. <laughs> yeah. I objected to two things you said. Anna. Um, one, that if you're in a relationship, you can't get liberated. And no, no, you, you can't end your suffering. Go ahead. Okay. And the other one was um, somehow equating killing broccoli and animals. Equating? It seemed like you were equating killing broccoli and killing Oh, animals. yes, yes. Well, okay, so the, the first one, you're talking to a guy who hasn't been in a relationship for 30 years. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm insensitive sometimes to the importance of relationship, and I think intimacy is overrated. But that's just me. <laughs> Comparing broccoli to animals is, is not fair. Because broccoli is a lower life form and animals are a higher life form and broccoli suffers less than animals do. And if we have a choice, I would say we should eat vegetables because that's using the lowest life form to sustain our life. And, and that would be the skillful thing to do. I don't want to say the right thing to do because there's a lot of meat eaters out there who think they're perfectly right. So we have this, the, the broccoli and we can sustain our life and we can have as much energy and as much strength from the vegetables and the legumes as we need to have a full and, and healthy life. So I didn't mean to say they're the same. They're very much different. And, but the mindset takes a long time to, to see the the importance of, of animals. And yes? Oh, on the other part, I've heard Noah say, I don't know if it's true or not, but that the Buddha said 
and I'm not in a relationship, so it's not like my own thing, but um, that the Buddha said if you're in a relationship, it's harder, but that you can be liberated. Well, I think you can find nirvana in a relationship. But then what happens to the relationship? So we look at the Buddha. The Buddha was a husband and he was a father. He had a son named Rahula. And he loved them very much. And he went off and he became the Buddha. He achieved nirvana. So relationships changed for him dramatically. And the son wanted his inheritance, the old story goes, and found his dad, the Buddha, and said, I want my inheritance. And the Buddha said, fine, and ordained him as a monk. And then mom, his wife, was ordained as a nun. Now, they didn't all live together. They actually lived in separate, you know, centers or temples or places uh, where people live. And, and I, it's, when I got my novice ordination in 1994, there was a Vietnamese family, father, mother, daughter, and they all got ordained that day. And at the end of the ceremony, they all went to different temples. So what happens with relationship when one achieves nirvana? It seems to me that it's not specific. It's not one. The relationship turns out to be in relationship with everything. It's, 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 it's depersonalized. It becomes all things are interconnected and interdependent, and that becomes the relationship. So does that mean you, you don't? have relationships? No, it means you have a healthy sense of detachment in every relationship that you find yourself in. Realizing if it's the perfect relationship and the perfect person, they will die. No relationship will last forever. Everything is impermanent. And the more attachment you have, the more suffering you'll have when it ends. So can you be in relationship with open hands and not attach and not own And I would say it's very difficult, but you can. And if your partner wants to leave, then you help them pack. And and because their welfare is is the important part in the relationship, not yours. But that is so that is so hard for people because I translate love into attachment. I really love that person. I am so attached to this person, I will never let them go. Because I love them. And I love my shoes. I am so attached to those shoes. And they make me the person I am today that I am not going to let them go. So when I hear somebody say love, I translate attachment. And I see attachment and aversion, suffering. And I go, whoa. And then it manifests time and time and time again in the news, unfortunately. But all the people that love someone and then went from love to hate. And you just go, wow. So, healthy detachment in relationship, the possible. It would, it, it would allow the relationship to last forever until one of the partners died. Because you would allow them the freedom necessary to be who they think they are in the relationship. Instead of having to define them as husband or wife or father or mother or brother or sister... They would just simply be part of the interconnection and interdependence. It's not a popular view. And, and I think for somebody like myself who hasn't been in a relationship, it becomes clearer why it's important to be 
to honor it, but also be uh, to to understand that it could turn on you. It could it could turn from the best to the worst in just a, a matter of moments. So to honor that, you know, is that does that make? I I would just add that 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 it's so difficult if you use it as a practice. It could be the greatest path to <laughs> absolutely because of the difficulty. But you have somebody like Goenka, you know, who who's married. And, and oftentimes referred to as enlightened. And, and you have, in the Buddhist texts, you have examples of people who are in relationship, who are married, who achieve nirvana. So, yeah, that, it's absolutely possible. But you're right, relationship is probably the most difficult path. I chose the easy one. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir? Um, so, let's say... Uh You've been traveling the path, you've been going down the river, you're practicing acceptance, and you're really good at going with the flow. You're traveling pain and enlightenment, and so you die, and then you're reborn. So when you're reborn, do you just pick up from where you left off in the previous life, or do you have to start back at ground zero? Well, that's a really good question, and all I can do is, is say that the probability uh, you won't start where you left off in the past lifetime because you've had infinite past lifetimes. And all those will affect your next rebirth. Not just this one lifetime, but all the ones you've lived where you were a murderer, a bank president, uh, a philosopher, a high school teacher. In all those past lifetimes, that karma manifests in a certain way in the next lifetime. So in Buddhism, it's, rarely is anything linear. It rarely does one thing lead to the next. It's presented that way because we, are, we, we need to look at it as a, as a model. I mean, have a one, two, three, four, make it understandable. But then you switch to Zen, and Zen just gets rid of all the one, two, three, fours. And just goes, it is. And you go, oh, what does that mean? You know, the sound of one hand clapping. What does that mean? And they never tell you, you know? You sort of have to figure it out. And then you can't tell anybody once you figure it out because you can't verbalize it either. So, so, so I would say, no, it doesn't go one, two, three, four. Thanks for the question. Did you? No? Okay, good. Okay. Well, we have come to the end of our time. Thank you all for uh, keeping me company today. And uh, let's do a loving-kindness meditation for all the people that weren't here. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment May we also have patience and courage, determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck, fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief. May the sick find health relief.